Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, my good buddy Dan. Dan, it was a fun week this week. Yeah, absolutely. All sorts of good stuff. I uh, had, a, had a great time heading out to the movies, I think, as did you. Wanted out to watch a group of characters we both have fond memories of from when we were younger. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, so, we're going to take a look at how the Turtles of 2023 compare to our Turtles from back in the 80s and 90s. Should be a lot of fun. Yes, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to jump into some comic book news. And I thought this was a really interesting story. Kevin Smith announces mail order subscription service for Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash. Now, Secret Stash is his comic book store in Red Bank, New Jersey. And Kevin Smith this last week took to YouTube to offer fans a chance to make Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash their local comic book store, colloquially known as The Stash. The the shop is located in Red Bank, New Jersey, and features all the regular stuff a comic book store might carry, as well as dozens of specialty items based on Smith's movies, TV shows, comics, and more. Smith is offering fans in the continental United States a chance to have their pull list delivered to their house from The Stash and get a 15% 15% off comics, graphic novels, and other merchandise. It isn't immediately clear if those discounts are available on specialty items in store or just things you would order through Diamond Comics distributors pull list. So what do you think of this? Because this seems like this might be a first. So I think it's cool in that Kevin Smith has a way of sort of attracting attention outside of our normal bubble. Yep. And the idea that there are folks out there who just don't really know where to go or where to start in terms of getting themselves a comic book, like a local comic book store, this is kind of cool. That said, there's also a part of me as someone who's had a pull list for years and gets 30% off on all of my stuff at my store, on all my pre-orders, and there are multiple places online where you can get 30 to 35% off on your pre-orders. It is also definitely not the best deal you could possibly get doing this. But it's cool because I think for a lot of people, that sort of cachet of, I'm buying from Kevin Smith, makes it worth it. And if you're just going out and buying comics without any kind of discount, uh, just buying them like you're raising your hand now. Yeah, I I do not get a discount at my comic book store, despite pre-ordering basically since the beginning of the year. Do you prepay as well, or do you have a pull list? I have a just a pull list. So they so tell they, me, I, I tell them what yep. I want them to pull, and then I come in the store and pay. Here's the catch. To get the pre um, the, the reduced cost on almost any of them, like the, the pre-sale price, the way they do it is that having folks do it the way you do, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who will ask the store to order and pull stuff for them. And then they never show up and pay for it. So because of that, you don't get a discount. That way they'll just do it as a, hey, we'll hold a book or we'll order a book for you. 
what me and, and my buddies do here is we actually get the previews catalog three months before the books come out. You got to write up everything you want, put it in this weird little book using an arcane system that only only Jim Plummer, one of my buddies, knows how to do. And then we bring that in and we prepay so that they are guaranteed that sale ah, before yeah. they have to shell out the money. And that's why they give the, the dough off. Sure, so, that makes sense. Yep. So, no, your your story is not uh, being unfair to you. It's just that to get the discount, you've got to go through all the hoops of actually paying for it beforehand. And if you've got a traditional pull list, then usually, yeah, you do just end up playing the, the full price when they come in. So, but no, I think it's great. Anything that, that gets people into the idea of having a comic book store and, and buying comics is cool. So he probably could be a little bit more generous on his percentage, though, if people are doing prepays. If they're not doing prepays, then it's a wildly good deal because nobody gives you 15%. Uh, if you're not paying for them, prepaying. But anyways, sure. All right, yeah. I thought this was I thought this was interesting. I wanted to get your opinion on it. I'm I, I'm glad I did. I wanted to just briefly mention we have a poster and a trailer for the new Loki season. I know I was really looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I think you really liked season one of mm -hmm. Loki. Season two Absolutely. is coming out October sixth. So if you have not seen the trailer or the poster yet, we will have links to those in the show notes so you can check that out. It's not really comic book news, but I wanted to throw it in here all the same. New in Marvel Unlimited this week, we have a bunch of number ones. Uh, Scarlet Witch Annual, Demon Wars, Scarlet Sin, Cult of Carnage, Misery, Spider-Man 2099, Dark Genesis, X-Men Before the Fall, Sons of X, and Edge of Spider-Verse, which features Spider-Rex, are all the new number ones available this week. So if you wanted to see Spider-Rex, you saw Across the Spider-Verse, saw the Spider-Rex. There's a comic yep. that you could find uh, with the Spider-Rex in it. Also, if you're into Star Wars comics, there's a bunch of new Star Wars comics that are being added this week as well. So... Lots of interesting stuff to look in into if you have a Marvel Unlimited subscription. Very cool. Dan, how about a recommendation this week? So I really enjoyed uh, one of the new comics I picked up this last week. It's called The Hunger and the Dusk, and it's a fantasy comic by Willard Wilson and Christian Wildgoose. Um, Wilson, of course, has done all sorts of good stuff over the years. Wild Goose, I really had not seen any of his art before, but it is absolutely fantastic. Just brilliant and detailed, but also just beautiful. Uh, the colors as well are absolutely just fantastic. So really a beautiful looking book. And then the story as well, orcs and humans putting aside their distrust in an effort to sort of team up against this common enemy, which is a new sort of demonic presence that's making it way into the territories that they've previously been fighting about, but now we're fighting together to try and defend. And features an orc healer named Terra, a human warrior named Callum, and I suspect there may be some romance coming between the two of those, but who knows. Um, so overall, really good first issue. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a lot of fun. That sounds really interesting. Thank you for the recommendation. 
All right, we're going to dive in and we're going to talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. But consider this your spoiler warning. This movie is barely a week old as you're listening to this episode. So if you have not seen this and you do not want to hear discussion about the plot, characters, the art style, there's going to be a lot of talk about the art in this. This was, It was a defining feature, I think, of this film. Pause the recording. Watch the film. Come back and join us as we talk about Mutant Mayhem. All right, your film facts for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. The tagline is, heroes aren't born, they're mutated. It was released August 2nd, 2023. It has a runtime of 99 minutes. And it's rated PG. I just wanted to point that out. Box office take worldwide, it has grossed about $51 million worldwide. Most of that coming domestically, $43.1 million since its release on August 2nd. It made about $28 million over the weekend It's in its first weekend. I would note that that $8 million or so that the worldwide, ta uh, worldwide take includes only includes about 30% of the international market that's going to be getting the film. So there must have been some sort of staggered release for this film internationally, which is yeah. a little uncommon, but that number is expected to increase quite significantly over the next few weeks. And so you're going to see those numbers start to even out. Typically worldwide box office ends up being international box office ends up being much larger than domestic box office. But I just thought I would point that out. All of this, by the way, on a budget of only $70 million. So they've already almost made back the money they invested in this. IMDb rating is 7.7 .7 out of 10. And we have a lot of stars that we got to talk about. Micah Abbey, Shimon Brown Jr., Nicholas Cantu, Brady Noon, Io Adebri, Maya Rudolph, John Cena, Seth Rogen, Rose Byrne, Jackie Chan, Ice Cube, and the incomparable Giancarlo Esposito. The movie is directed by Jeff Rowe and Kyle Spears, and the screenplay was by Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Jeff Rowe, Dan Hernandez, and Benji Samut. Those are your film facts for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mutant Mayhem. Very interesting. I, I didn't know that it was being staggered on the international. That's kind of a an odd and interesting thing they're doing. So, Yeah, I did not realize that either. And I kept seeing this 50 million number and I started researching it a little bit more. And that was the uh, that was what I could find about it, which I think is, like you said, definitely different than what we've been seeing with a lot of the big uh, movie releases uh, over the last several years, at least, and probably a lot longer than that. So, Dan, do you want to give us a bit of a recap of what happened during this film? Sure. And first off, you know, PG movie, How it, it's interesting that we are deciding to actually, as to, you know, I'm, I'm 54 years old or something like that, and I'm going to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Took my kids, but... Interestingly, you know, my son was two when Cars came out. 
And I've been watching a lot of animated movies for the last decade and a half. I recently told them I'm done. No more animated for me. And then uh-huh. I kind of broke down and went to this one. And I got to say, unforced, and it's I'm back to loving animation and animated movies again. Uh, even if they're made for kids, they can be an awful lot of fun if you just sit back and enjoy them. And so yes, this one started out 15 years in the past as a TCRI strike force attacked the lab of Baxter Stockman, who is a scientist creating a family of mutant animals. The lab's destroyed, Stockman is killed, and his ooze that he was using to make these mutants drips down into the sewers. As the mutant babies, none of them notably are turtles, escape away uh, into sewers and, and out into the wild. Back in the present time, we end up being introduced to each of our four turtle heroes individually. We get each of them kind of named and then their weapons and the like. Find out they're on a grocery run. Uh, they spent the last decade plus hiding in the sewers growing up and only going out to get supplies and to watch the occasional movie from a rooftop. They accidentally end up getting involved with the theft of April O'Neil's scooter uh, during one of these runs and they end up taking on a gang of car thieves to get it back. April sees them while they're fighting with the bad guys and recovering her scooter, and together they hatch a plan to help her expose Superfly, a criminal that she's been researching, who is stealing technological and scientific supplies from a company called TCRI. Their hope is that in doing so, they can reveal themselves to the world, they can be heroes, they can be accepted by society, and they finally can get to go to high school like other normal teenagers. The turtles end up meeting up with Superfly, planning to trap Instead, they find out that he and his gang are also mutated animals. In fact, they're the babies from Stockman's lab who are now all grown up. They've suffered porous treatment at the hands of humans, and Superfly has come up with a plan to mutate all the animals on Earth and enslave all humans. Our heroes are not interested in that plan, but are captured by TCRI before they can do anything about it. They're then taken back to the lab to be milked by a very weird machine in a, a relatively uncomfortable running joke that goes through much of the movie. Uh-huh. Yep. April finds Splinter, and together they sneak into TCRI and save the turtles, after which the group heads to Superfly's hideout and convinces the rest of the mutant animals that destroying humanity is not the solution. At that point, the turtles and the other mutants team up to destroy his machine, and Superfly appears to be destroyed as he drops into the ocean. But, a few minutes later, he resurfaces, quite literally, as a whale-slash-kaiju-type monster that then takes off into New York City. The turtles and their new mutant friends take on and defeat Super Superfly, eventually with the aid of the humans of New York, who April has convinced the turtles and other mutants are the good guys. Once the, ta- it, oh. Once the battle's won, April has redeemed herself, Superfly's old gang moves in with Splinter, and the Turtles are welcomed at her high school. Things end up with two ominous notes, though, as we see that Cynthia Ultram is still watching them, and she still has enlisted help from a shadowy character named Shredder. So. That is a fabulous recap of the movie. So. It was fun and this is not a one of these nine minute recaps like we've had from some of the movies this is not a complex plot it moves pretty quickly no and you know 
we have car cases that go for a while and we have some things it uh it's a straightforward entertaining just sort of quick movie 90 minutes of action and fun yeah yeah and I think it's very well paced, I would say. And it doesn't it doesn't feel long. You can recap mm-hmm. it. It's not long, anything like that. Having said that, I think we have to start with the art and the animation because I think from the very first time you see a trailer for this movie, you see this art style. And it is a very distinct art style that works really, really, really well for this film. Uh, this art style I was actually something that we have seen slightly before. There's a movie called The Mitchells versus The Machines that actually Jeff Rowe, who directed this, co-wrote and co-directed. So it has a little bit of the same look, but it but it this feels like a Turtles movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Part of the reason it feels like a Turtles movie is because of this art. I would absolutely agree. I also will note that I, I really enjoyed this art style a lot. I thought it was it was super yes. appropriate. It was very cool. I also suspect there are going to be some people who this art is a bridge too far for. I bet there's going to be a number of folks who go in and think this art is really just not great. And part of the reason is it does look almost unfinished and there are times when it looks weird and i think you've got some things you want to talk about that as well um it is also you know you talk a little bit about it being like his previous film uh mitchell's versus the machines if you've seen that one though its art is downright like finished compared to the turtles art. um have you watched mitchell's versus the machines I, I have not. I, w- I went out and I looked at a trailer based because I had heard about this film. And it, I mean, it looks it looks cool, but it like and it looks different. Like, I yep. think the Turtles movie looks. But yeah, it, it's definitely still different. We're we're talking different things. And and one of the big reasons is Jeff Rowe and the design team really wanted this movie to look different they they talked about the fact mm-hmm. that a lot of animation and and cartoons now look too polished and they they wanted to make this look more like concept art they talked about this being you know we're centering this movie around four teenage teenagers right so let's make the art style look like you were in high school and you were drawing and how the you'd always see these exaggerated features, spikes, random af- effect lines, and they wanted to have that feel in the movie, and I, and I and I think it works. And I hadn't even considered kind of the the parallels of, and, and we'll get into this too with the story aspect of it. We're seeing this movie is all about the turtles, and you're talking about teenagers, and and like I think the fact that. The story is centered around them, and then kind of the art sort of is centered around them as well. Really works, and it's an unconscious nod to them, and really kind of hammers home that this is a Turtles movie, and this is why you're here, and this is why you're going to enjoy yep. the film. Yeah, it, it reminded me in a lot of ways of just sort of that that free and kind of... Um, 
really almost anarchic art style that you had in the early black and white turtles comics that I love so much. You know that it was it was not so much that it wasn't it wasn't good art in those early turtles books. It's just that it was obviously a little bit just freewheeling. They weren't they weren't worried so much about making it 100% polished. They just wanted to have fun and do something that that looked the way they wanted it. And that seems to be kind of the same the same feeling you get from the animation in this movie. So it seems just perfect in terms of evoking the spirit not only of the turtles but of kind of the way that the turtles comic books made you feel in terms of that connection to the art sort of viscerally. So I really like that. Yeah. 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 So talking about the turtles specifically, it was interesting because I was somewhat expecting all the turtles to sort of look alike, except for, you know, the, 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 the band across their, their, you know, their eyes to be a different color because a lot of times when like the animated cartoons, even even the Eastman and Laird comics that we read last week, the the turtles themselves looked rather mm-hmm. similar and they did something different here. They went with a less bulky version of the turtles and and really played up the fact that they're teenagers. Yep. Right. You've got Michelangelo who is very, very slender and has braces. You've got Donatello with the glasses and it, Raphael looks like you know, beefcake uh, of the, of the group and actually has a do rag rather than just the, the bandana over the eyes. And so they all sort of had like a slightly different look. So even if you weren't, you know, if you were looking and even if they didn't for whatever reason, have their, 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 their bandana on, you'd still be able to tell the difference between them. Yeah. It is interesting too, the way that, you know, they've, They've hidden in the they've hidden in the sewers for fifteen years, but somehow they managed to find an orthodontist down there that was that was able to do do braces. <laughs> Sometimes it's best not to think about certain things. You just kind of accept it and go. But but yeah, right. I, I like the fact that they gave each of them a role within the, the team. They gave each of them sort of a defining look and even sort of physical features. You know, we've come a long way from just giving each of them a, a separate color mask and, and calling it good, right? So, right. And I, I right. really did like the characters. I liked the fact that the actors were kids. I think it really did give a, a very authentic and energetic sort of feel to the characters. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to be talking about that here in just a minute. One note about Splinter, though, I thought was amazing is they really uh, they really wanted to play up kind of the dad aspect of yes. Splinter in this. And they wanted to give him this disheveled look from the stress of being a parent. And in fact, I saw some references to saying that they kind of looked at the dude character, Jeff Bridges character from the big Lebowski and kind of as the fashion sense because he's learning like sweatpants and all this sort of that. thing. And then with the body type, with the body type of like Danny DeVito and, and, uh, you know, you, you hear that and you think about what splinter looks like in the film and you're just like, yep, that's exactly what that is. It is just perfect. There was a really interesting article that I had read 
about the, the making of the film and they were talking about all the other mutants beyond just the turtles and splinter and that and how those came to be in the film and it was really interesting because they were talking about i think it was with jeff rowe was talking about the fact that he remembered like the toy the 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 toys the teenage mutant ninja turtle toys from back in the 90s and stuff like that and that the back of the box there's like 20 different mutants and they all have these cool types of animals and they've got designs and and they weren't planning on having so many of these mutants in there. And when they were doing some of the concept art, they they worked with an artist, Woodrow White, who was kind of the lead character designer uh, for the characters and mutants within the film. And, and he initially did Bebop and Rocksteady because they were definitely going to be in the film. And they were like, whoa, these are really cool. Mondo Gecko is not going to get in this movie, but we should see what Woodrow could draw one and make it see see what that would look like. And so he went back, he drew one, and and they were like, "Oh crap, this is amazing! We've got to put Mondo Gecko in the room." Okay, now do Ray Fillet, and hit the drawing for that was excellent. So they put him in here too. So finally, we get that Rogues Gallery of Mutants that that is working for Superfly. And and I and I just I love it. I mean I I can't even tell you I remembered all of those characters, but just their look and everything, it just sort of it, it added to the whole film and it really did kind of hope play up that whole mutant mayhem theme when it when it when it all came said and done. That is really interesting. That's very cool. I can I can see that though. That uh it could get out of hand if you start just you want them all there it did kind of get out of hand actually there were an awful lot of people in this yeah yeah so you have some info on the on the animation companies and stuff like that right yeah so there were two companies that were that were used for the animation uh a micros animation that's based out of montreal and paris and then cinecite from that's in vancouver and what's interesting about this is, is, you know, we're hearing a lot with the like number of animators and things when it comes to like the Spider-Verse movies and that these two companies only have about 120 artists. So uh, the, a lot of work was done by actually a pretty, pretty small team. And, and I just find that interesting. And, and in a lot of cases, from what I'm reading, they didn't have any sort of nostalgia for turtles. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of a lot of these like artists and and uh, you know animators and stuff did not grow up on the turtles. They're younger than the turtles. The turtles haven't been kind of as big into the zeitgeist. I don't think maybe yep. in the last that decade, fifteen years, that they were in the early nineties, and so they actually liked the fact that there wasn't so many people that had that tie to what they thought the turtles should look like based on what they had seen previously. And so they kind of felt like it gave a new look or could give a new look to the turtles by having people that didn't, didn't have that, uh, that preconceived notion already, already built in. So I, I think that's really interesting. And, and I really hope actually based on this film that a lot more people have 
have uh, an idea of who the turtles are going forward because I, I think they did a fantastic. One of the job. other things that uh, I was seeing a little bit of online was that a lot of the a lot of folks came out after Spider Verse and talked about sort of just the the crushing pressures that were put on some of the animators and the like, and evidently for this there was actually kind of a uh, almost like a. a an intentional push to not do that. That essentially Seth Rogen's companies are pretty relaxed, yeah. as you might expect, probably a company run by Seth Rogen would be a little more <laughs> relaxed. And they, they wanted to also not run the animators into the ground. So they worked a lot more on making sure that the, the schedules and the like were more human and, and reasonable. So um, this I don't know if, if there should be one of those eth ethical treatment of animator awards or something like that. Kind of like you have for for animals uh, at the end of movies, but it sounds like this this movie might get one of those if such a thing were to be uh, to be awarded. Yeah, it sounds to me like Jeff Rowe is kind of the opposite of Phil Lord when we talked about Phil Lord a few weeks ago with uh, Across the Spiderverse. Somebody that that basically is very hands on and and has to approve everything. Jeff Lord or J uh, Jeff Rowe, excuse me. Sounds like he's more of a hands-off kind of gives you an idea of this is you know this is what he's looking for and and is a lot more uh, you know gives gives you some latitude I guess it would be the best thing and there's not there's not as to much control gets there. out of the way and lets talented and, and, people do what they're good at. Well, it's a good yes, plan. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. All right. So you talked about the voice acting and specifically you mentioned the kids. And, and I and I think we have to talk about all the voice acting because there were a lot of really good voice acting jobs done in this film, starting with the, the four teenagers that played the Turtles. Did you know, Dan, this is the first time the Turtles... The four turtles have been played by four teenagers. No, but it wouldn't surprise me at all because back in the day they just didn't do that sort of thing. Yeah, so it was always adults playing everything. No, that is that is the thing. The uh, they they were really excited about actually having having this uh, happen, and they they felt like it was really important because you know this is a teenager focused movie and. They wanted a coming of age sort of film, and, and in a lot of ways, this you yep, know they, it is that it, it is that exactly, and I think it requires you to have voices that sound like they're not adults, mm -hmm. right? To kind of help make that come to fruition. No, I think I think that was a really good decision, and the the kids obviously did a great job, and then you've got obviously them being backed up as well by some very experienced actors who can kind of help to add some highlights and the like. Um, was it Paul Rudd who played the gecko? A lot of... He was a highlight for me. Yes. A couple of his yes, lines. Not only the lines, but the delivery just really cracked me up. So, yeah, they had some great voice acting. The, the, the interesting thing is you talk about the, the actors, the more experienced actors... Most of the experienced actors were also experienced voice actors as well. Seth Rogen's done 
uh, a Lion King movie and you've got, you know, Giancarlo Esposito has done a bunch of uh, video games in addition to, you know, obviously being a very talented on-screen actor as well. Jackie Chan has done uh, some animated things as well. And so you had all these people that kind of knew how to do voice acting and then you brought in these kids and, and it just all of it sort of together worked. And and the thing about the teenagers, I think, is really interesting is they all kind of tried to bring something different to their to their character. And and I, I have notes here that uh, Abby drew from characteristics of his friends and previous portrayals of Michelangelo or of Donatello, excuse me. When he was when he was, uh, you know, putting together his uh, Shimon Brown did not want to be that typical surfer dude voice for Michelangelo, and so he was looking at uh, Brandon Mikkel Smith's take uh, of Michelangelo from Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Only he wanted to do his own thing with it. Uh, Nicholas Cantu wanted to bring a quality of nervousness to Leonardo, feeling like there was a level of anxiety that comes with leading a group. And Noon wanted to balance Raphael's rage with a more lighthearted and funny performance to make him more relatable. And uh, even even April O'Neil, who Io Adabri is a fantastic actress. If you have not seen The Bear TV show, she she is fantastic on there is Sydney. She wanted to harken back to her teenage years and tap into her character's determination. And I feel like you you read that and you think about how those characters then ended up on the screen and they just they they nailed it. It's wonderful. Yeah, I I would agree. I think you know they they were the heart of the movie. Those five characters obviously, uh, they're the ones that were on screen pretty much all the time, and they were right. all fantastic. The, the the other thing that's really interesting about this film is actually how they went about doing the voice recording because they did something differently than a lot of times you, you do. Typically, you end up doing voice roles, recording them one at a time and just sort of putting them together. And they tried that initially with this and they said that it worked, but it didn't work as well as they wanted to. And they ended up doing these larger recording sessions where the the actors ended up voicing all their lines together in groups up to, you know, starting at like two and three and going up to as many as seven actors at any one time to make basically an audio <laughs> nightmare. But they said one of the things that ended up happening is there ended up being a lot of improvisational yep. things that would go on. And the interactions between the characters would end up being a lot more uh, fluid and a lot more realistic. And Seth Rogen was quoted as saying, for every session we lumped people together, we really went out of our way and bent over backwards to try and capture that improvisational energy you get when you have a lot of people in the same place at the same time. And And it does. It feels like there is this like kinetic energy just throughout this film that kind of helps push this film It's not along. just the turtles that love improv. It's evidently uh, the, the cast and crew and, and everybody. So, very cool. Now that, I think just overall, 
the the voices, as they always do in an animated movie, they kind of make or break it. In this one, what I like is that more than any in a long time, yes, it's animated, yes, it's a bunch of, you know, mutant turtles and the like, but it actually had a more grounded feel to it than a lot of the other cartoons and the other ones. It yeah. was a it was a, a goofy show with like a you know mutated kaiju sized fly as the big bad at the end. But the characters sounded more grounded and real and it felt more like some of the early comic books than it did like some of maybe the, the later cartoons and stuff, in in my opinion. Um it it had a kind of a, a more action movie kind of heart to it almost when it came down to it rather than the comedic side yeah speaking of the story this is actually i think one of the best parts about this the the story is a fun story to me but it also has heart and has a really really good message in it one that i think is something that teenagers specifically but i think we all need to hear a a a theme of acceptance of accepting who you are and and not trying to be something that you're not and it's i i loved the fact that seth rogan of all people it fi i find this amazing that seth rogan looked at the teenage mutant ninja turtles and was like you know we've never really had a movie that focused on the teen, the actual teenager portion of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We, we've been, he said, I, as a lifelong fan of the Ninja Turtles, weirdly, the teenage part of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has always been the part that stuck out to me the most. And as someone who loves teenager movies and who has made a lot of teenager movies and who wholeheartedly got their start in their entire profession by writing a teenage movie... The idea of kind of honing in on that element was really exciting. I mean, not disrespecting the rest, but really using that as kind of a jumping off point for the film. And, and it's just so, so just nails it. And Jeff Rowe talked about this being the ultimate coming of age film, teenage coming of age film. They, they were looking at movies like Stand By Me, uh, Freaks and Geeks, The Edge of Seventeen, Lady Bird, and Pen15 is influences from those for, for this film. And all of those films are actually, uh, TV shows and films actually are fantastic. And like they taught, you, you see the message about family and about acceptance. And there is, it is, it is a family movie. And what better message I think they, that you could have in a family movie than those that sort of message in, in, that you saw in this film. It moves pretty fast, though. It's not it's not sitting around like you know dwelling yeah. on this or anything. You have to be uh, you have to be keeping up to stay up with right. the message with all of the mutants flying around, karateing each other. So because of that, I I like the fact that it's one of those where. Yes, it's for kids. Yes, it moves fast. But if you do happen to want to slow down and think about it a little bit, the story's been thought out well. It's paced well. It's, like you say, got a good message. Um, I really I really thought this was... This was the sort of kid fare that I like, where it is something that's obviously made for preteens and teens. 
but if you happen to be a parent who is spending 15 years of your life going to animated movies with your kids, this is going to be a highlight, <laughs> right? One that you can go to and actually uh-huh. have a good time and enjoy. Uh-huh. And, you know, so that's what I did. My kids are now 16 and 18, and we went and ate popcorn, and they watched watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with me. And we all enjoyed it. So it's, uh, there are a lot of teenage, of, of animated movies out there that are just saccharine and you get out of them and you're just demoralized at the state of children's uh, entertainment and then you go to one like this and it's yeah i would i would not mind watching this this is good stuff and and you know seth rogan is one of those people who is perpetually sort of on the verge of being 40 and 14 at the same time and so he's so the perfect says, guy to do this movie. I, I saw the the uh, some marketing for the film, and they talked about the perpetual teenager Seth Rogen behind mm-hmm. behind the film, and and that probably isn't too far from the truth. And, and to your point, I there were a lot of kids I think in the theater that we went to because we went on uh, Saturday late morning, early afternoon. Um, sure. My wife and I went. We don't have kids. But we enjoyed it just as much as I think any of the kids that were in the theater uh, that were there. It was mm-hmm. there was some something about it that just kind of felt felt right. It, like my my wife was saying, this felt like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Like there mm-hmm. is, she had an idea going in of what she thought a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie was, and when we got done. She's like, that's what that was. That was definitely what that was. And and I can see it. I could definitely see it. And like, I was looking at the comics last week. I was thinking about those. I loved all the references to those. And we'll talk about those in a bit. Mm-hmm. I remember the, co- the, the, the cartoons. I remember the early live action movies. And it did. It, it felt like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. None of those movies are very complex. They don't they don't they're not trying to be, you know, anything I think too spectacular. Yeah. They just want to be entertaining and be family friendly and provide a good message and be entertaining. And I and that's actually everything that this movie was. And and so I think you have to be happy about that. There you go. Also, as we, you know, talk comic book movies here. I, I was struck more than once by how similar the plot of this movie was to the plot of the first X-Men movie from back in 2000. I don't know if you remember, but the one where I... Magneto and his band of mutants decide that the only way for them ever to be accepted by society is to make a big machine that actually turns everybody else into a mutant so that then that's just what's normal. And we uh-huh. have the big set piece in the Statue of Liberty. Have you not watched that yet? I have not have watched to it in a one. long time. I have there not watched it in a long time. So yeah, this was uh, this very, very reminiscent to me of of that. I think that Superfly and Magneto, have they, they'd have a good time hanging out and having a beer together. They're very similar people. So, What did you think of the humor in this film? Because I found myself actually laugh out loud... Mm-hmm. funny uh throughout this film you know april meeting the turtles for the first time 
uh, when she after they go and defeat those the 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 people that stole her 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 scooter, she comes in and they're hiding, and she's like calling them out and all that, and just the some of the things with uh, Splinter and the three Chris's cutouts and things like that. There were some just sort of kind of funny lines. There were some kind of outrageous things that you were seeing. There's some kind of mm-hmm. slapstick things. There was all different types of humor and it all pretty much worked for me. And I think it feels like it worked better for me than a lot of movies uh, recently that I've seen. Now, I, I think one of the things I liked was that despite the, the vanilla ice and the three Chris's stuff and everything, it, it depended less on self-referential comedy in a lot of ways or pop culture comedy. And a lot of it was actually just funny. There were some good jokes. There were some really excellent line deliveries and stuff like that. It was a genuinely humorous movie in a lot of ways. And and not just like kid humor and not all just toilet right. humor like, oh, oh, look, she's vomiting or whatever. Yeah. But there was there was some legitimately funny stuff it was it was a a feel-good movie that you could just sit back and enjoy and then have a good chuckle every once in a while so yeah so humor is good the music i thought was actually really good it complemented the movie well we had trent reznor and atticus ross who if you remember those two they teamed up and won an academy award for best score on the social network we had Lots of hip hop music from popular artists, a lot of early 90s East Coast uh, hip hop specifically uh, that uh, was in this film. I I just I think that was part of it, too, that I kind of had some of this music in my head because, you know, back when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were popular, this was the stuff that was on the radio. And so hearing it end up coming coming on during the film, I thought was great. And you cannot, you cannot tell me that you didn't love hearing Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go, Vanilla Ice from the Ninja Rap from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, when that came on during the fight scene. Come on. I I will only say that is not my turtles. That is not my turtles. So Come on. So, so how weird, though, by the way, like, if you're thinking about... Say we're back in the early 90s, and someone told uh-huh. you that 15 years from now, Trent Reznor and Ice Cube are going to be in an, a, PG, <laughs> yes. a PG-rated like animated movie with the Turtles. You'd be like, that does not compute, you know? That doesn't seem right, yes. That does <laughs> not doesn't seem like something. This is what happens when people get old and have kids. So there you go. But it still seems weird to me that Trent Reznor is doing animated movies soundtracks. I I liked No Diggity is in there, and then we had the Four Non Blondes song that in there as well. Which again, mm-hmm. that doesn't feel like that should fit in there. But we had it. We kind of had the original version, and then it it went over into this remix version, and it just it everything about this film for whatever reason just felt cool. And and I just I loved every every part of it. Yeah, and I like that it used some new songs because a lot of animated movies for kids now just sort of recycle the same three or four songs every every time they're they're doing a chase scene or they're doing whatever. 
and everything for the most part seemed like it was stuff I hadn't heard a hundred times before in in movies. So yeah, like the soundtrack. It's good stuff. So the interesting thing about this film, I think more than anything, is we did not have the shredder in this, at least not until the mid-credits scene. And and one thing I will say is initially if you'd have told me this was going to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that did not have the Shredder in it, I think I'd have been a little suspect of how this was going to work. But the the story was just fine without without him. Mm-hmm. And the we we had kind of two villains in this film already. We had Superfly, who who is the mutant that is, you know, stealing things, but we also have Cynthia Utram the head of TCRI, who we find out, you know, after the, the, the main movie, she's still around, she's still keeping tabs on the Turtles, and she's actually calling in the Shredder for for a potential sequel. And I I'm 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 really happy with the film that they 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 found a way to tell a really compelling, really cool story about the turtles and they did not need to include the shredder. So I have now something to look forward to for a potential sequel. So they did do some damage to the origin story to do that though, because yes, they did do that back in the actual comics. You've got splinter. Who's actually the pet rat of a ninja master who ends up getting killed by shredder and vengeance. Um, and then, Splinter had actually learned all of his martial arts from watching his master in the dojo. Now Splinter right. is just a, essentially a rat, and he's, you know, he's down in the in there, and they've got a television, and so they're watching YouTube videos and stuff like that, and that's how they learn their martial arts. It's a much different kind of vibe as far as that goes, but it all works, uh, and it does mean that then. Shredder doesn't necessarily have to be as as big a part, um, because if you've got that origin story, then he kind of almost as a natural part has to end up in the story. So yeah, the the interesting thing is there was original versions of this film that had Shredder in it, and they were written up because Jeff Rowe wanted the film's villain to be a mutant that shared empathy with the turtles, and who could easily tempt or put potentially corrupt them which is where superfly comes in and and i think it works like it, oh, it, it's sort of there is there is this sort of lure and like when they go and are are at the bowling alley and and they're like hey you guys are cool and you know they're they're taught they're they feel like they're part of a group for the first time yep. and it would be so easy for them to just sort of continue on and go with superfly and his gang of mutants and do the thing where they destroy the world of all humans and but 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 they don't they 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 have this teenage growth moment realize that's the bad thing to do and then they you know they they turn on them now mind you that's that should be a pretty easy one to realize that's the the bad one to do yes we're not yes we're not talking about a bit of shoplifting, which, by the way, the turtles already are evidently expert at, because I did not see them yes. paying for any of this stuff. They're they're uh, lifting yes for the, the grocery runs. Yeah, so uh, that yeah. was that was sketchy of them. 
but uh yeah no i i would i would agree i mean it makes sense i'm okay with it i am increasingly less interested in whether something sets up a sequel than if it just tells a good story though so i'm glad that what right. they ended up doing when it came down to it is they're like look people might expect this but here's where we think we've got our best story let's just do that and then we'll worry about shredder or we'll worry about whatever else later and that that makes sense to me yeah no that makes sense sir you've got some tidbits for us i bet at this at this stage what uh what do you have yes. for us? So we do have kind of a working title for this film. Before they went to Mute, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, they had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Next Chapter. That's what this, uh, by October 2021, when the movie was fully into production and they were working on the film, that was the working title until they kind of had more finalized the story mm -hmm. and realized just how many mutants were going to be in it and how, how everything was going to kind of play together. And, and then the name just sort of mutant mayhem just sort of, sort of came together. Uh, Jeff Rowe explained that they were trying to, with this film, make things more logical and tried to skate past a lot of things that didn't make so much sense about their, about their uh, kind of lore surrounding the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They said they wanted to m make it really operate from a place of character and relatability. So they, and hence kind of that focusing on the teenagers, focusing on on, on family and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and, and like I think we've said, I, th I think it worked really well. Superfly was originally going to be a mutated version of Baxter Stockman, and but ultimately they decided to separate them and make them two separate characters. We saw Stockman as the scientist, and he ends up dying during the, the, the raid at the beginning of the film, and his kind of pet uh, fly that uh, had just recently been infected with the ooze and become mutated ended up being a completely different character and i think this ended up working out for the best too just because i think it would have been a little weird to have like a it, it would have felt a little bit almost like the fly movie with jeff goldblum almost if, if they were like here is here is this human that suddenly is a mutated creature as opposed to a human whereas you know we had splinter who was a rat originally and got human characteristics you had the mini the little turtles that ended up being you know humanoids after it, it just it suddenly looks to me like it starts to create something different if if it's the same character you're saying jeff, and so i'm glad they didn't do using jeff goldblum has just permanently made it impossible for anyone to do a story where flies like people mutate into a fly that's just over now is that what's happening seems unfair i but, maybe maybe not but i think <laughs> in this instance i think they went the right way what i find interesting is thinking about this they actually turned splinter into superfly because superfly now has splinter's origin story where he's a pet who essentially whose whose master is yeah. killed and then he goes out and avenges him by you know 
stealing from originally TCRI and then eventually just destroying the entire human race's plan. So kind of kind of strange. But uh yeah, and and of course, yeah, in other in other stories, Baxter Stockman has indeed ended up being mutated himself. So that would have been something that definitely could have happened, but I think it works just fine the way they did it. So he does end up mutated. Oh yeah. Oh goodness. Yeah. I guess I should have figured that, but I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't. I guess it's just. I can't remember why exactly, but I know what happened at one point. So, anyway, that's the stuff I wasn't. I wasn't paying as much attention though. So I, uh, yeah, somewhere out there, someone, someone who's listening you wanna... can give us the details if they remember. So. There you go. Do you want to talk about some references to the comics that you that you saw in the film? Sure. I mean, the first one is the origin was changed. Talked about that. No daredevil, uh, you know, the no canister that falls into the sewer. We've now got the TCRI origin instead, which different, but it, it works just fine. Splinter, again, not being the pet of the martial arts master. There's also some references to the creators themselves. Uh, they've got Eastman High School is the high school where April and eventually the Turtles go to. And they actually met right. at the Laird is where um, the Turtles and April met when she first interviewed them. So that, of course, Peter Laird. So both of the, the creators have a, a prominent sort of call out in the film. Baxter Stockman, one of the, the classic yes. originals, still makes me laugh that really one of the dumbest jokes about paper quality in the history of, of 80s comics continues to be a name that's used like baxter stockman what a dumb uh-huh. name and i chuckle because hardly nobody knows what baxter stock is anymore but uh, they've, right. they've changed him a little instead of making mausers he's now this lonely mutant creating scientist uh they wanted to still get him in evidently April is now younger. She used to be a uh, like a reporter at the TV station, or somebody who was older, living on her own, and the like. Now she's a, a teenager. Well, she, she was the she was the assistant to Baxter Stockman. Yeah, yeah, the, she was actually a, a lab, uh, um, a scientist in a lab assistant. in the uh, in the original comics. So, kind of one of those where there are. Uh, you know, they wanted to make that change again to focus on the teen part of it. So then they'd have inroads into the high school. Makes sense. I love that there was an extended car chase, which harkens back to our 16-page car chase from the original comics. Yeah. I don't know if that was intentional, but the fact there was a relatively long car chase, to me, I'm going to call that a callback to that ridiculous um, almost 20-page car chase in the original comics. TCRI is there. Uh, we didn't get quite as much of an inroads into them, but of course that's the company that is a front for the aliens in the in the comic books. And Cynthia Ultram as well, probably a pretty significant sort of Easter egg that's, you know, if they do get a sequel, this will be one of the places they can pay that off. The Ultrams, of course, are the aliens that live inside the weird robot bodies at TCRI. So the idea is that probably she is an Ultram and maybe in fact it's even Krang in there or someone who is is similarly going to be a a supervillain from the the Ultram uh, peoples. So 
we're uh, we're ready for a sci-fi adventure next time they've got it queued up if they decide they want to send them to space so we'll see how it goes Shredder and the turtles in space mm-hmm. for the sequel you heard it here first but but i do think one of the coolest things in terms of from the comics is reading those seven comic books before you went to this having seen it now i think it'd probably enrich your viewing a little bit even having watched the turtles it, before it definitely did it definitely did there were and and like it, it's not so much that like if you didn't read those books you were missing out necessarily because it it doesn't really make or break the film but at the same time it feels really cool to see and recognize those things when you see and hear them on the screen and then there's a bunch of stuff i know i missed because a lot of the like the mutants and the like they came after i quit really reading the turtles books and or you know they'd be from some of the later cartoons and stuff like that so like i didn't really know the gecko or uh, some of these guys and everything and i'm sure for other folks that was going to be a highlight because they're a little later but there were a lot of things from those first, uh, you know, original Eastman Laird books that actually survived into, into this movie, uh, relatively intact. All right, Dwayne, got an interesting one for you here. I think every week we do our face, or every two weeks, I guess we do our face off. We read a bunch of comics one week, and then we watch a movie based off those comics the next last week we read teenage mutant ninja turtles number one through seven from back in the 80s the original black and white eastman laird books and then this week we watched teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem the uh the seth rogan movie so which one of these do you think did it better what's your pick this is really, really difficult for me because it, I really liked this film. I liked it actually better than I expected to like this film. I thought there was a dis- decent chance that I would like the film, but I didn't think I would like really like the film and really be excited about seeing it again or something. But I found myself really excited about seeing the movie again like a second time, whether it be in the theater, but more likely probably once it finally reaches a streaming service, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm seeing things suggesting that it could be as early as sometime in September. So I don't know if that's uh, set in stone or not, but, but that is potentially something that could happen. Um, I think though, I am going to side with the comics here. And the reason I'm going to do that, and this is the re and, and, and I have to say that my rationale for this is going to be that without the original comics, there are no adept, there is no movie. There is no anything from this franchise. And you, you think about, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of these other characters that we see when we're talking about the MCU, I think you could make a case that they would be around there. The comics would still be, the characters would still be available in the comics. Right. And, And that there would be a situation where you just wouldn't necessarily have the MCU banner movie all things that that so many more people see but i i really feel like 
specifically with the turtles if you don't have those first you don't have eastman and laird you don't have those first comics the black and white comics you don't have the world building that was done by them you don't have this entire franchise and you don't and you have all this stuff that does not happen as because these characters don't exist and i and i just feel like some of these other characters could have existed and but i don't feel like i don't feel like we have seven teenage mutant ninja turtle movies without those comics and and those first comics taking off the way they did and while they're not like when i think of the teenage mutant ninja turtles i think of more of the animated series and i think about some of those early live action films but i think i you have to nod to the the original comics here because they are so important to the fact that this this franchise exists all right very cool very cool indeed I don't even have to just nod to them. I I simply prefer the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that are in these early comic books to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that come afterwards. I like the fact that these are Frank, you know, they're they're Frank Miller inspired and they're a little grittier and they are really sort of made with a slightly older audience in mind and they're the turtles that I've always loved. And actually that's one of the things I do like about this show is that I think that while it's lighthearted, uh, they do show that these guys can wreck people a little bit when they when they need to. And they've got some, some interesting takes on, on the characters. But even though, and I would say probably the character development is better in the movie. But I just like... I like the overall feel of the story and, and the way it was developed in those. Those early tur- Turtles books are just some of my favorite comics from when I was a kid. I feel like this movie might be the closest adaptation of those original comics and the idea of what the Turtles are and what they could be of anything we've seen since the anime, you know, since those original comics, right? I feel like you probably, with the animated series, with all these other movies and stuff, things got further and further away from that original idea of what Eastman and Laird may have had when they brought these characters to life. And I feel like this movie does its best to kind of say, listen, this stuff way back at the beginning, this is important. This is what the characters are at their core. And we want to bring those up because we think those that's really great, and and, and so I, I, I think you commend Seth Rogen, Jeff Rowe, and and all the people behind this film because those original comics were really cool, and I, and I think they did a really good job of of trying to be true to those, but also you know doing it in a in a medium that allowed for them to do other things, and and I love the fact they picked the art style that 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 kind of was reminiscent almost of it as well. But it is, it is really hard not to just be like, how, how, how do we have any of this without, without Eastman and Laird and those first comics? I would, I would agree also that I think this is, like I said, I've only watched previously the, the 1990 movie, 
But of all the ones I've seen previews for and stuff like that, everything else seems like it was a bit childish and a bit campy compared to the original books. And this does not feel childish or campy. It's it's made for kids, but it's not childish. You know, it's 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 right. a solid story. It, it it feels like some of that stuff was was merchandise, yep. right? Right? They they were like they were trying to sell us something, whether it be, you know, more pizza or lunch boxes or action figures or what have you. I feel like this was you know, let's get back to that original story, the original idea, the original yep. thing that made the turtles great, and let's show them the world that that can be, that that that, that, that can be cool too. Excellent. All right, two for the two for the comics this week, though. I like it. I'm glad to see it. Dan, did we have any correspondence this week? We actually did, and it's kind of interesting. Last week, one of the things that we did was we talked about turtles, but we also talked about Ronan and sort of the influences leading to the turtles, and then some of the books coming out of that that were some of the black and white comics that um, kind of led into that, that black and white boom that the turtles sort of started. And one of the books we talked about was Adolescent Radioactive Black Belt Hamsters Number 1, and we actually got a chance to visit a little bit with the writer of those books, Don Chin. So he uh, he wrote in, uh, got to visit with him a little bit about some of the things that he was uh, he he was happy about and that he'd gotten to do with that book, including uh, which I had forgotten about but remembered once he mentioned it that the uh, the black belt hamsters were once actually a question on Jeopardy, which is pretty cool. So. Um, it's, Thank him for his time writing into us and visiting with us. That was nice to hear from him. Yeah, I'd also like to uh, send out a shout to uh, a listener, Forrest, who reached out to me about uh, about the episode last week. And so thank you, Forrest, for reaching out. Dan, where are we headed next? It's been a while since we've been uh, back in the MCU. I think we're making a, a trick back to phase three, yeah, aren't we? We are finally getting back into our stated goal of looking at the uh, the movies of the MCU. We're heading back into phase three, which is where we left off. And we're going to be looking at Thor Ragnarok. We're going to be looking at our Thor volume two, uh, number 80 through 85. That volume actually started um, back in the 90s and ended in 2004. And then we pick up with volume three of, of Thor, which starts in 2007, numbers one through six. So uh, volume three especially, uh, those are some of the Straczynski issues. I really enjoyed those. I'm hoping that you're going to have a good time with these. So no, That sounds great. I've been looking forward to some uh, Straczynski books after meeting him at the Phoenix Comic oh, Con right. here in June. Look at this. So, Perfect. There we go. Yes. And with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show. 
Maybe you saw the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, or you got a chance to read the Eastman and Laird books that we talked about last week. We'd love to get your thoughts on them. You can send it, send us those via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week at Comics Overtime there. Dan, this was a lot of fun. It was a great movie. I loved the fact that I caught so many more references having read the Eastman and Laird books last week, and I'm really looking forward to some more Thor books coming up this week. Absolutely. It's going to be fun. And as a note, we're now at the very end of the podcast. If any of you out there who've been with us through the whole thing happen to be looking to uh, take refuge from the Twitter X debacle. Uh, I actually am over on Blue Sky, and I have a couple of invite codes that are available that I'd be happy to uh, to get some folks who are comic fans over there with me. There's actually a pretty strong comic community there already, so it's uh, it's a great place to head on out and check out if uh, if you're looking for a new social media option. I have a couple invites as well. Thanks to you inviting me, I now have a couple invites as well. So between Dan and I, hopefully we can help you out and get you access in there. Just uh, drop us a note and we will we will work to get you hooked up. Sounds good. Thanks, folks. Uh, until next week, take care, everybody. <laughs>